Genesis 14. Open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in the pew in front of you is yours uh, to use. Uh, We'll be on page 10 in the pew Bible. As always, uh, we'll do a little Q&R afterwards, so if you have any questions as we go through, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the box and type in your question. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, this, this is your word this morning, that we get to uh, open up, that we get to sit under. It is our authority. And it's, it's weird. It's hard to figure out. The names are weird. The stories are strange. But you have a purpose for it. You have a plan for it. You've, you've decided to put it in this book for our benefit, for our good, for your glory. God, I, just, I pray that this morning we would just begin to scratch the surface of what you're doing in this text. That we would see how good you are. That we'd be challenged, that we'd be comforted, that your spirit would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, uh, some, a member of our church came up to me and said, I don't, I don't remember what I taught on, but th- she came up and said, hey, just so you know, I, we just love it when you get nerdy and just go deep into the Bible stuff, you know? And I said, thank you. And I was recollecting about six months before that, we had somebody come visit, and they said, just so you know, um, she said, my husband really likes your brain candy, but we're never coming back. (laughs) So that's what it's like to be a pastor. (laughs) Uh, We're going to get nerdy this morning. Uh, I hope that's okay. If it's not, it's... I'm sorry. Um... We're going we're gonna to tackle this text in a couple different sections, but before we do, I think one of the things that this chapter in Genesis really does is it really helps us understand how the Bible works. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here, and as, as Christians, we... Um, we would say that, that the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament are our highest authority. They're what we would call our only infallible authority. There's other authorities. There's, there's doctrinal statements in church history and, and all kinds of things out in the world, but the scriptures stand above that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this word inspired, this is, if you've you've heard us talk about this before, this is a word that, as far as we can tell, Paul made up. Uh, It's the word theopneustos, and it means God-breathed. It's a compound word that we don't find anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. And so we just assume that Paul had this idea about what was going on in this book, and he didn't have a word to explain it, and so he made one up. And what it means is that God has actively participated in the creation of these books. They stand above all other books, all other documents, all other traditions, and they have priority This is the only book that we can say is 100% approved by God. 
It is inspired. It is breathed in. But how do we know what inspiration is? And I think the best way to understand inspiration is to actually look at the Bible itself. And Genesis 14 is a really fascinating place to look. And I've got a couple things to point out here that maybe for some of you, depending on where you've grown up, what your church experience is like, they might be a little challenging. Um, sometimes we can get the idea that what inspiration means is, is Moses. Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. That Moses is just sitting in his tent somewhere and the Holy Spirit falls down from heaven and he goes into this trance and starts writing frantically and then he wakes up out of the trance and, and now we have the Bible in front of us. But that doesn't seem to be how inspiration works. And when we understand how God uses people to create his word, I think that strengthens our faith. Because the problem is, and if if you've been around social media much on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, there are a lot of people out there that are seeking to discredit Christianity. They have their whole accounts that are just, my whole goal is to make you not be a Christian anymore. And one of the things they'll do is they'll try to poke holes in the inspiration of Scripture. They'll, they'll, they'll call out things that maybe you never noticed before because you don't spend a whole lot of time in Genesis 14. And, and the intention is that it would cause doubt in your mind about whether this is reliable. And I think a good idea is just to take those things head on and point them out. Because I think when we have a true understanding of how inspiration works, when we face those criticisms, we can go like, yeah, but that's, that's a bad argument. That doesn't make any sense. And you will have a stronger understanding and a defense for the authority of Scripture. So the first thing I want to point out is that this story, Genesis 14, this story is really old. It used to be past generations of critical scholars would put forth this idea that like most of these stories in Genesis are just kind of made up. They were made up maybe a thousand years later, um, just kind of old wives' tales that kind of circulated for a while. And they said this because, you know what, we can't, we can't find the names of these kings anywhere. We don't have any other documents in ancient history that name these kings. And that's true. But there's also a lot of things that we don't have evidence for in the archaeological record. It's a big, big time period and a lot of dirt to dig up to find stuff. But John Walton says this. He says, it must be admitted that there are many gaps in our knowledge of the history of this period. The only way we learn about this time period is to dig stuff up in the ground. And we're constantly doing that. And if you, if you pay attention to like archaeological current events, they're constantly bringing new evidence for the Bible's historicity. But we do know, based on some of that digging that we've done, that this story was written down near the period of time in which the events occurred, not generations later. I talked about this a few weeks ago. If you write a story set in a time period that you don't know much about, you will use details that line up with your own time period, not the time period you're writing about because you don't know any better. So if you want to write a story that takes place in the Middle Ages and one of your characters is wearing a polyester jumpsuit, you know that you don't know a whole lot about the Middle Ages, right? And if you read that story, you go like, well, this person, maybe it's a good story, but this person probably doesn't know their history very well. 
But that's not what we find in this chapter. What we find is that these names of these kings and these places, they line up perfectly with the kind of names that we have found at that period. While we don't specifically know who they are, they're the kind of names we would expect for people that were alive back then. If this story were written down many, many years later, chances are the people alive at that time wouldn't have access to those names and they would have used names that they were familiar with. But that's not what we find. And additionally, there's this, this really neat feature of this text in uh, verse 22. It says, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say I made Abram rich. That phrase, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap, that's actually a technical legal phrase that comes from the Akkadian people that were alive back then. It's, it's a very specific way to say what Abram is saying. And again, if, if this was written way after it happened, the authors probably wouldn't have access to that cultural idiom. But Abram says what he says because that's the way they talked back then. If someone's making this story up a thousand years later, they, don't, they wouldn't have access to these details. Bill Arnold, in his commentary on Genesis, says, this chapter appears to have had an independent history from its context and is likely older than the other sources used in the composition of Genesis. So when we think about inspiration, when we think about the process that God used to put together this book... Maybe we think that, you know, God just downloaded all this information into Moses' brain. But what could also have happened, what's also a possibility, is that Moses, the primary author, takes multiple accounts of his ancestors and compiles them in the form that we have them today. Another aspect of this text that I think is really interesting and at first glance kind of makes you uncomfortable is that this chapter was edited by somebody after Moses. See, the Old Testament, the written tradition of the people of Israel is this group of documents that they meditated on and stewarded for centuries. And God's inspiration of the scriptures includes sometimes processes of revision that happen later on. And here's what I mean by that. In verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, so Dan is a city. It's like the very most northern city in Israel. But Dan is not founded by the Danites, the tribe of Dan, until Judges 18, which is hundreds of years, not only after Abraham, but two generations after the time of Moses. So Moses either wrote down or compiled this story, and then someone later, a scribe, came back to Genesis 14 and said, you know what, that city that he's talking about, that's actually called Dan now, and I'm going to write that in there. 
And maybe you think like, is that allowed? Is that okay? Is that possible? Can, how, how does that work with what we know about inspiration? See, I would say that, that God's inspiration is, is bigger than just a one-time shot at writing down a book. God is inspiring his, his scriptures over the course of time to the state that we have them in today throughout not just the primary authors of the texts, but throughout generations of scribes that are keeping and maintaining and storing this book and making sure that it's preserved over the centuries. And this is the kind of thing that maybe you, you hear it, and, and the reason I bring it up is because you could hear that, like, you know, somebody added to Genesis that wasn't Moses. And that could, that could be used to attempt to shake your faith, to make you think, like, maybe I can't trust this book. But really, I think that should do the opposite. I think that should create more trust in this book because look at the lengths that God has gone to to preserve his inspired word and communicate it to us today. So, let's get into it. We're going to start with some battles. There's three battles, starting with the first battle. Verse 1. In those days... King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Chedorlaomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemaber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. So this is battle one. These four kings from the northeast... They come down to Canaan, sort of, near the Dead Sea, and they just conquer. They go through town after town after town, subjugating them. And they take specifically these five kings and these five cities under their subjugation. And this lasts for 12 years. But after 12 years, everybody gets tired of this, and they rebel. Verse 4, they were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with them came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karanaim and Zuzim and Ham and the Emem and Shavakiriathaim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran in the by the wilderness. They came back to invade En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. I told Karis, you just say it fast and act like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so the narrator is telling, this, uh, telling us that this coalition of kings, there's four kings, and they're led by Cheddar Lamor now. He's the head king, and they're powerful. They defeat all these people groups surrounding Canaan. The Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, these are all tribes that are descended from uh, people that the book of Genesis calls the Nephilim. And if you remember, it's been more than a year now, I think, that we talked about the Nephilim, but these are these semi-supernatural uh, warriors who were the descendants of this weird story in Genesis 6 where the sons of God come and they take wives from the daughters of men and the Nephilim are birthed from them. And it says they're the heroes of old. And, and the idea throughout the scriptures is these, is these guys are, are strong, they're fast, they're bigger, they're better than everybody. And these four kings, Chedorlaomer's coalition, they just destroy them. They beat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, all these groups are no match for this coalition. 
Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against King Chedorlaomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar. Four kings against five. There's another battle. Now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell unto them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. And they also took Abram's nephew Lot, his possessions, for he was living in Sodom. And they went on. So the cities rebel. They probably stop paying their taxes. It takes two years to work through the process, but then the four kings finally come down and they're... they're rampage throughout the territory, destroying all these powerful armies to punish these five kings. And there's a bunch, we know this, this is the way that this today, there's a bunch of petroleum over in the area of the Dead Sea and it kind of bubbles up to the surface in these tar pits. And the five kings are so routed in this battle that their armies, they're, they're, they're fighting on their home turf and their armies still fall prey to the natural geography of their own territory. They fall into these pits they are defeated. And there's this note that Lot, Abram's nephew at this point, has moved from living near Sodom to actually living in the city of Sodom. And his family is captured in this battle. So then we move on to battle three. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went to pursue as far as Dan. And his servants de deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So Abram finds out about Sodom. He finds out specifically about Lot, his nephew, who he loves. And he has at his disposal this large group of men Slaves, most likely, born in his household. And he's living with these other guy, near these other guys, Mamre and Aner and Eshkol, and they presumably have large clans. So they get all their men together, and they pursue. They track down the four kings, and they defeat them in battle, and they take back everything that was stolen from the five kings and their cities. This whole narrative, these three battles, they are meant to communicate to us the power that Abram has. He has defeated a coalition of kings who in turn had defeated ancient semi-supernatural warriors as well as the five kings of the plains. So Abraham is, Abram is stronger than all of these forces. It's like if you do like a, um, a, a sports bracket for like March Madness or whatever, and you've got all, all the teams on the first um, tier, and then they kind of have the next one, they have the next one until you get the one in the center that wins. Well, the one in the center that wins, they, he didn't play all of the teams, but the assumption is because of all the teams that they beat, they're better than all of the teams. That's kind of how the bracket works. And, and this is what this is communicating. Abram didn't defeat all of these armies, but he defeated the army that defeated all the other armies. So Abram is the strongest. Abram has been blessed by God. We found out in, verse, in chapter 12. And this is just one more illustration of his strength. So then we get to the weird part. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about this section. 
And we're going to meet a character named Melchizedek. After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to the Most High God. Or to God Most High, sorry. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. But the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Okay, this is our introduction to one of the most mysterious people in biblical history. Melchizedek is just, could have just been like a weird guy with a weird name in one chapter of the Bible, but it ends up being a whole lot more complex than that. So I want to I take a look at three things. I want to ask the question, what do we see in this text? What is Moses communicating here by this text? And how do the rest of the scriptures add to it? So first, what do we see in the text? King Sodom and, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is the city of, which will later be called Jerusalem. They both come out to meet Abram. And I think we're meant to compare them. The king of Sodom is abrupt. He's maybe even rude. Uh, Abram just saved him, his city, right? He just like really bailed him out of a big problem. Um, but Melchizedek, who had nothing to do with the battle, he comes out and he is warm and he is generous. We read that Melchizedek is a king, but he's also a priest. And he's a priest of a God, and our, our, most of your English Bibles probably say God Most High, but the, the word is, the name of the God is El Elyon. This is the first time we meet an official priest in the Bible. And we learn throughout the scriptures that a priest is a representative of people to God and a representative of God to people. He's a go-between. It's possible Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness, and the city that he's king over uh, is called the city of peace. But this God that he is the priest for, El, uh, John Walton says that El is also the chief Canaanite God in Ugaritic and Phoenician literature. See, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you probably remember the people of Canaan and often worshiping a God named Baal or Baal. According to the Canaanite religion, Baal is actually under the authority of another god named El. El is the highest of the gods of Canaan. He's the creator god. And Melchizedek is, is this priest king. He's kind of, he's a pagan priest king. And he declares a blessing over Abraham in the name of his god, El Elyon. Then Abraham, or Abram, he doesn't just say thanks. He gives 10% of everything from the spoils of the war to this priest as an offering. It's kind of like a worship service through Melchizedek to El Elyon. And then we see the king of Sodom who is like offended and resentful about the whole thing. 
The, in the Hebrew, it's, it's six words that he says. He says, give me people, take property yourself. He doesn't say hi. He doesn't say thanks. He doesn't say, wow, you really got me out of a jam there, Abram. I owe you. He's just real curt. No honor, no courtesy. But Melchizedek, he brings out bread and wine, like good royal food. And he honors Abram with these gifts. We see that Abram doesn't want to be made rich by Sodom's resources. Abram, as the conqueror, had right to all the spoils. Everything that Sodom says, you know, you can keep all the stuff. That was Abram's right. He, he earned it, but he doesn't want it. He gives 10% to Melchizedek. He advocates for his friend's portions. He rescues that, you know, there's been, or he, he recognizes that some of the food has been eaten, but then he gives all the rest of it back to the king of Sodom in this act of extreme generosity. And then Abram declares that Yahweh, his God, is El Elyon, that they're actually the same. And they are, he is the creator of heaven and earth. And those are just some of the crazy details in this chapter. Why is this in here? What is the point of this story? What is Moses, whether he wrote this down or assembled it from an old record or whatever, he's responsible for this book. What is he doing? We'll talk about Melchizedek later because he comes up again. But we have to ask, what are the people of Israel in Moses' day supposed to understand? When all you have is the five books that Moses wrote, none of the other stuff that we have access to has been written yet, and you're reading through this chapter in your Bible, what are you supposed to get out of this? And I think we get this wrong sometimes because the scriptures are ultimately authored by God, right? And so we just assume that like everything in the Bible has been written by God for me, for us, no matter when it was written. But that presumption kind of shortchanges what God is doing at the time with his people. And we can't go to the scriptures assuming that there will be parts that are essentially meaningless to the people that they were written to. God here is communicating first, not to us, but to the ancient Israelites. So what is he saying? I mentioned a couple weeks ago that everything in Abram's story is going to go back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This story in Genesis 14 is showing us that the promises of God are starting to be fulfilled. God made this declaration to Abraham that he was going to take care of him, that he was going to make him strong, that he was going to make him a blessing. And we see here, Abram's reputation is becoming great. He's being a blessing to those around him. A foreign king blesses him and is blessed in return. Another foreign king treats him with contempt. And in a few chapters, we're going to see how that works out for Sodom. This is one more opportunity for Abram, as we've been walking through the last couple chapters, to make a choice. He has every right to plunder the city 
for all of its wealth in order to enlarge his own fortunes. But he has sworn to the Lord that he's going to trust Yahweh to be the source of his blessings. Bill Arnold comments, Abram knows that the source of his blessings is not dependent upon the losses of another. The blessings of God are infinitely expandable, and whatever Abram acquires will be by the hand of the God who called him from Mesopotamia, rather than at the expense of the neighbors in the Jordan Valley. That's a good word for us, I think. We often live in a a world that we think is kind of a zero-sum game. If I am going to be blessed, someone else is going to have to lose out. If um, If I'm going to have enough, then someone else is going to have lack. But that's not the way God's economy works. God, we read later, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has more resources than anyone could possibly need. And when we are in need of resources, we do not have to depend on depriving others of resources in order to get them. Abram is committed to trusting in Yahweh for his his provisions. And he's not going to do it perfectly. We're going to see Abram screw up multiple times. But this is the heart that he has. And the ancient reader of this text, I think, is meant to go, good job, Abram. You are, you're walking in the path that God has asked you to walk. And look at how good Yahweh is. Look at how great God is for keeping his promises to you, for, for making you strong, for making you a blessing. This father of the Jewish people, this is a win for him. But then we move on later on into the history of the scriptures. What does the rest of the scripture do with this story? And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Melchizedek is is this random king in one chapter in Genesis. And then he goes silent for like a thousand years. (laughs) And then we read Psalm 110. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Huh, just after, you know, a millennium, David just kind of drops this guy's name back into the Bible. This is a royal psalm. It's, it's addressed to the Israelite king in Jerusalem. And the psalmist, whether it's, whether it's actually David or whether it's just ascribed to the catalog of David's psalms, he says, the king is actually also a priest. See, in Israel, the role of the priest and the king were separated. Uh, Early on in, in Exodus, Moses is called to lead the people out of Egypt to be their deliverer. And he, he doesn't really want to, he, he makes up a bunch of excuses. He says, you know, like, well, they won't believe me. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to talk super well and, and, and just all of these things. He finally just goes, you know, I just don't want to. So God kind of sighs and says, okay, how about 
how about your brother Aaron helps you? And this creates this situation in Israel where, where the leaders and the priests are different people. But in Psalm 110, the psalmist says, you know what, king, this, this king that maybe, maybe is a king in the future that we haven't seen yet, you're going to be a king and you're going to be a priest. Those, both of those offices that have been separated are going to come together. Like that Melchizedek guy. You remember him like a thousand years ago? He was the king of Jerusalem, but he was also the priest. It's going to be like that. The king is going to be an intermediary, an intermediary, one that can bridge the gap between God and the people. And as you read through the Hebrew scriptures, this idea, this, this like one-off worship song is dropped into the bucket of all these other ideas that are forming in the minds of the Jewish people about this anointed one, this Messiah that is coming one day. We re we'll read a couple more times in the book of Genesis, these just hints at this person that's going to come. And we read it from Moses later on, and then David talks about it, and there's these Psalms and the prophets, and just one after the other, there's all these little things that talk about this person that's coming. It's like like having a cork board in your basement with all these little pictures and like red pieces of yarn between them. Like, what is he, this guy talking about? And well, that sounds like that guy. And what does that mean? And, and so there's just this like, this thing out in the middle of nowhere, this like Melchizedek. It's going to be like Melchizedek. Weird. And so then a thousand years later, we get to the book of Hebrews Melchizedek has gone dark for another millennium. And the author of Hebrews writes this in chapter six. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you think, huh, that's weird. Hebrews is amazing, by the way. Our community groups are going to go through it this fall. Shameless plug. But the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that is, it might be Paul, it might be somebody else. It's all right. Remember that, that, that song that David wrote that one time about that weird chapter from Genesis? He was talking about Jesus all along. See, the author of Hebrews sees in Melchizedek this example of this priest king, and he says he has no background or no history. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, we read, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And in Hebrews, you get a whole chapter. Chapter 7 is just all about Melchizedek. And it's, it's unclear whether the author of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek is actually immortal or whether the story in Genesis 14 paints him this way. But either way, he draws this analogy that this priestly line that's different than the priestly line of Aaron is based on the power of eternal life. In verse 15, and this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. 
for it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And what he's, what he's thinking about there is that the priests, the priests, the sons of Aaron, the family of Aaron, year after year after year, they, they come and because they're sinners, just like all of us, they have to come and they have to seek forgiveness for their own sins in the temple before they can do work on behalf of the people. And then because they're sinners, well, they just die all the time. Like it's super inconvenient. Your priest gets old and he dies and you have to get a new one. Because that's what happens to sinners. That's the wages of sin, death. The author of Hebrews is kind of saying, these priests, they're not super helpful. They aren't what we need. Verse 26, chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so he spends this extended amount of time, and, and we, we don't have enough time to really go into all of the stuff in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek, but he paints this picture of this priest king. This priest king that, that doesn't have a lineage, that just kind of shows up. And he's this king who reigns in Jerusalem. And his name means the king of righteousness. And he's somehow like outside the conflict, but he shows up in the midst as a mediator between the creator of heaven and earth and this, this man, Abram. And then he gives gifts to the people. He gives bread and wine to the one that Yahweh has invited into this relationship with himself. So we'll do a little Q&R in a minute, but... I want to ask the question, why is this important for the author of Hebrews? Why does the author of Hebrews look back to this really weird story and go like, yeah, Jesus is like that. Why is that important to him? John Owen, who was a pastor in the 17th century in England, says this, many poor sinners go under Christ principally, if not only at the first, upon the account of his priestly office, to have an interest in his sacrifice and oblation to be made partakers of the mercy and pardon procured thereby. What Owen is saying is that there's a common way that people meet Jesus. It's when we are weighed down by our sin and we are in need of forgiveness. Maybe many of us in this room can say that's our story. We came to a point where we recognized our brokenness, our sinfulness, the fact that we were unable to get by on our own strength, our own ability. And we heard about Jesus, this wonderful savior, this priest who comes and sacrifices, not, not bulls and goats, but himself on our behalf to cleanse us from our sin. Maybe, maybe this morning, you, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. I don't know all of you. And, and that's, that's a word that you need to hear, that you are dead in your sins, in your brokenness, in the, in the way that you live. You are outside the goodness of God. But Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice on your behalf to take away the penalty of sin and give you 
new life, to intercede on your behalf as a priest between you and God. And that's good news. We read the Hebrew Bible, we learn about the priests, and we see in them a picture of this ultimate priest, Jesus. And they help the people to be made right with God. But they're also weak and corrupt. They, they intercede, but they lack power. But Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews, seems to be saying, Melchizedek, he's not just a priest, he's a king. He can not only pronounce a blessing from God on Abraham, but he can bring out a feast. He can make a show of his power as king. John Owen continues, he says, but when they come to him in a way of believing, they find that he is a king also, ready, able, powerful to relieve them and unto whom they owe all holy obedience. See, Jesus is our ultimate high priest who sacrificed himself in order to bring you and I into right relationship with God. But he's also a king who defeats sin and death and he invites us into his kingdom and gives us provision from his own store of riches. Jesus is our savior and Jesus is our king. And we can't get one without the other. The offices are no longer separate Jesus is ready and willing to sacrifice himself and redeem us, reconciling us to God. But that can't be divorced from his requirement that we bow our knees in submission and obedience to his royal authority. It's a package deal. And that's why Melchizedek is an analogy that continues every thousand years or so to blip up in the scriptures and end with the author of Hebrews saying, yeah, it's like that. Jesus is so much better than the priests. He's so much better than the king because he's both. Because he has the power because of his eternal life, his indestructible, endless life to do all the things that the human priests and the human kings couldn't do. I just happened across this quote by Leslie Newbegin this week. Jesus is not only my savior, he is the Lord of all things, the cause and cornerstone of the universe. If I believe that, then to bear witness to that is the very stuff of existence. If I think I can keep it to myself, then I do not in any real sense believe it. Newbegin has a really challenging word for us. If, if Jesus is just my private religious experience, if he's just the way that I soothe my broken conscience in order to get through the day, if Jesus is on the same level of someone else's like spirit animal or crystal energy or meditation directed at the cosmic waves of the universe or whatever, then, then Jesus is no big deal. But if Jesus is the king, if Jesus is God most high creator of heaven and earth, then every facet of our lives should be shaped by that reality. Knowing that, internalizing that, believing that should change the way we live. And so that's my final encouragement for us this morning is, is Jesus the priest king in your life this morning? Do you recognize that he not only saved you from your sins, but he demands your allegiance? 
that you can't have one without the other. And if these things aren't true for you, they can be. You can, you can come to Christ. We see in the story, Melchizedek doesn't, doesn't make Abram do anything. He just, he just shows up and he offers himself to Abram. This is the character of our God in Christ. He offers himself to you. To be your priest and your king. So let's, uh, let's do some questions. There's a lot of questions. Good job, you guys. <laughs> Is the reason Paul made up God breathes similar to the reason someone came up with the word hangry? Yeah, probably. <laughs> when, you, when you don't have a word, you just, you, you, you make one up. How would you encourage a Christian that struggles with suicide to keep going? They're medically unstable to have their desires come true. What is their hope? That's a hard one. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if somebody is medically unstable, they should see a doctor. I think that's a, that's a good first step. I think suicide is a difficult place to be contemplating. You've come a long way from being healthy relationally, um, spiritually, physically, maybe. Um, what I would encourage you to do if you know someone who's struggling with suicide is to um, not ignore it, to be aware of it, to talk to them about it, to ask them questions about it, to get them help for it, to refer them to someone who can help them. When, when you are so depressed that your life doesn't seem valuable anymore, um, I would tend to think that your desires and your hopes are probably a little cloudy and skewed. And so I don't think there's a, a real easy, a real easy thing to say to that person in that, in that moment. They need to be tenderly, gently led out of that place by the reminder of the love of God for them. If they're, a, if they're a follower of Jesus, be reminded of their identity in Christ. But I think the worst thing to do would be to ignore that. If there's, if there's signs of, of that, uh, if there's talk of suicide, if there's talk of plans being formed, uh, now is the time to step in as someone who loves them and get them help because they can hope in Christ but in that state they, they're not going to see that does God breathed describe not a singular act in time but ongoing breath that animates the text with the spirit able to withstand changing understanding um, I don't, I'm not really sure exactly what this question is saying. I don't think so. Um, there's a, there's a sense there uh, in which some people have talked about inspiration as, and this is a very 
if you're familiar with postmodernism, this is a very postmodern way to think about this, that, that a text has meaning when you interact with it. Um, and I, don't, I think that's a foreign idea to Paul. I, I think Paul sees the scriptures as having inherent meaning, um, uh, eternal meaning, meaning always. And so while I would say, I would affirm that like when you come to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit working through your heart and your mind illuminates them in, in a way for you. I mean, I, if, you've, if you've experienced this where maybe you've, you've read your Bible a lot over the years and, and just for some reason a certain verse just pops out at you and, and, and you, you see it for the first time. I think that happens, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about with inspiration. I think, I think Paul is saying that the text that we have is the text that God wants us to have. And that comes through him, but it also comes through the human authors that wrote it. And that there is a meaning to that text that is constant. And, and I would be hesitant to um, accept an, an idea of inspiration that just lets us do what we want with that meaning. Because I think that meaning has to be consistent through all time, or it um, it's just becomes meaningless if we can make it mean whatever it wants. Do one more. How could God possibly still be for me if I constantly doubt him, blame him, and willingly ignore him? Why would he want to still hear my prayers and heal my pain? I just want to say I'm just really grieved for you. Really. It's a really heavy place to be. It's not a um, unique place to be. If you're, if you're wondering if maybe you're the only one that feels that way. I mean, I think I would want to say two things about that. Um, God's character is so much better than mine. You know? pretty confident that I'm the kind of person that just kind of gives up on people after a while. Like if you hate me hard enough, I'll just be like, whatever. But God doesn't do that. Like that's, that's the thing about God, right? Like he's, he's just altogether different than we are. He's so much greater than we are. He's so much, his goodness is so much bigger than ours. And in some ways, like, I don't know how to answer that. Like, cause I just, I don't know. I don't know how he does that, but I don't know how he does a lot of things. Cause he's just so much better than I am. But I do believe because I believe that God's word is true, that he does hear your prayers and he does want to heal your pain. And he's inviting you back to a relationship with him right now. 
And if you find yourself constantly doubting him, blaming him for things and, and ignoring him, then have you, have you really, have you really like dug into that? Why are you doing that? What, where, where, where do your doubts live in your soul? What are you blaming him for? Why are you choosing to ignore him? That's the, that's the privilege you have as a free creature, isn't it? You've been given the ability to just turn your back on God. Uh, the book of James. Let's see if I can not paraphrase it. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And you read that and, and it feels like James is kind of being kind of a jerk. It's kind of heavy handed there. But I think he gets at something that's really important. That God is inviting us. Always inviting us. But um, he's also the creator of heaven and earth. He's also God most high. This universe is run by his rules. And we are all broken people. Sometimes we're broken because of stupid, wicked things that we do. Sometimes we're broken because of the things that have been done to us and deformed us and distorted us in ways that we couldn't even comprehend. And Jesus says, I, I want you near me. I want you with me. I want you to be a part of this family but you need to trust me with your stuff. You need to trust me with your junk. You need to give over to me the things that you have done to screw up your own life. You need to give over to me the things that other people have done to screw up your life. And you need to let me deal with it. And I don't know, I mean, all these, all these questions are anonymous. That's why we do it this way. I don't know who has this question, but... God absolutely does hear your prayers and he absolutely does want to heal your pain. But he also knows that the way that that works is by giving yourself over to him and his processes. And sometimes that's not super fun. Sometimes it's, it feels like it's going to be more painful than just living in your pain. But again, he's the one that made this whole thing and he knows how it works. And I would just encourage you to trust him with the process. 
to draw near to him in prayer, to draw near to him in his word, to draw near to him in the community of God's people. That's what we're here for. That doesn't mean that we all like air our dirty laundry to everyone on a Sunday morning, but find some people that you can trust who are walking with Jesus to walk with Jesus with you. And slowly, day by day, every day, just give it back over to him. God, I I just don't believe today. Tell him and let him deal with it. God, I think this is your fault today. Tell him and let him deal with it. But the one thing that I would say not to do is don't ignore him. Trust him. We're going to take communion like we always do. Um, I was reading this week just some old church commentaries from the Middle Ages and stuff. And, and for a long time, the church has, has kind of keyed into this idea that, that Melchizedek brought bread and wine. That's weird. <laughs> that, God, that, that God's servant, the, the priest king of righteousness of Salem gives bread and wine. And I think there's something to that. Again, like God is the ultimate author of this book and I don't really think there's coincidences in it. We come to this table on Sunday and we receive the gifts of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder of many things, but it's a reminder today that we are blessed by God most high. That the creator of the universe bends down low to come into relationship with us, to give us his good gifts. That this morning, if if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to Christ, you have been rescued, redeemed, adopted, made alive by this gift of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And he calls you to receive that gift and to follow him. And so as we... So the band comes back up, and as we sing, if you have given your allegiance to Christ this morning, if you are his, if you belong to Jesus, I would invite you to come up and receive the gifts of his broken body and his shed blood. We have wine and juice available for the dictates of your conscience. Take them back to your seats. Um, and just, just seek the Lord over the next few minutes. Ask him what he would have you do today. I recognize that a lot of what we covered was kind of heady. But there's, there's, some real, there's some real pain in the room this morning. And um, the Lord is here to meet you in it and help you walk through it. I would just encourage you to use this moment to receive the bread and the cup to pray, you can sit, you can stand, you can come kneel at the prayer rugs if you uh, want to adjust the posture of your body as you pray. But just spend some time letting the Lord speak and draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church 
at revelationcda.com.